0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: Ten years ago this month, Lehman Brothers collapsed. The largest bankruptcy in U.S. history is seen. It's seen as a key moment that set off the Great Recession. But a question that is still asked by some people today is, why was Lehman Brothers allowed to fail when AIG was saved? Was it a bit of government gamesmanship, helping out friends at AIG? A recent opinion piece in the New York Times puts the blame of the global financial services firm's downfall on Lehman itself, saying self-inflicted wounds and missteps led to the company's flatline. Madeline Entonsich is an economist and former vice president and treasurer of the World Bank. She's also a former chief risk officer at Lehman Brothers, was there between 2002 and 2007. She's currently on the board of overseers at Wheel Cornell Medicine, and she recently authored an opinion piece, Lehman Failed for Good Reasons. And it's great to have uh, Madeline joining us on the show right now. Madeline, thank you for your time.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank Good you, and a, and a pleasure to have you in studio, studio with us, Giordi Thottom, who is the business and economics opinion editor at The New York Times. Great seeing you. You too. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so, Madeline, take us into uh, the world that you knew of Lehman prior to uh, the collapse of the company, and uh, you go uh, lay out all of these self-inflicted wounds. Tell us more.
2: <laughs> yes, well, thank you for uh, the question. So um, I'm going to go back uh, in time, actually, and talk about – back in '98. Lehman actually had a very near-death experience. And I was not at the firm at the time. And um, that was during the Russian crisis, if you remember, and long-term capital and that whole series of things that was going on. And um, they almost went bankrupt back then. And so what they did was went around, talked to investors. and and got sort of a little bit of a relief to uh, straighten out what was going on in the the firm. And so um, at that time, they really didn't have much of a risk management function at all and had um, subsequently then uh, asked me to join. And I joined Lehman in the summer of 99. And basically... Um I found myself in an institution that really didn't have much of an appetite whatsoever for risk management, which is why they got into that spot to begin with. And they were also having liquidity problems. So and ha- having Madeline. had that experience what, let me just let me just make yeah. the point. Having had that experience, then they realized we need to get our acts together. And so what I ended up doing was um, uh, creating a whole risk framework, risk appetite. Um, uh, risk equity model and um, all the models and hiring people and really got everybody on board internally to the point where everybody really did live risk management until we had um, a, a, a big meeting of the managing directors and senior executives in '06, where the decision was made to let's start quote putting the pedal to the metal because, you know, now we've got our acts together, we're making a lot of money. And so let's take more risk.
0: So and Madeline, was, a- was that the point you feel like your function that you were starting to feel that sort of real pushback from layman that, you know, you it, I, I remember when you and I were talking about the piece, uh, that sense of, you know, they were not you were trying to point out risk, but they were not listening. Is that when you started to, to feel that?
2: Well, um, I started to feel that after the 06 change of sentiment, and that's why when I, when I talk about the tone at the top change. So so uh, envision going from nobody caring about risk to everybody caring about risk to now all of a sudden we're going to max out and let's stop caring about risk again. And so by, the, by 06, um, when we had that decision, that they made that decision, um, you know, bit by bit, um, uh, the, the tone was, you know, let's just push this aside because, you know, things are different. You know, the world's in a great spot, a lot of complacency, even though, you know, uh, the, the corporate spreads were at all-time tight, volatility was, you know, all-time lows, and, and people really stopped focusing on risk. And so by um, end of 06, beginning of 07, for sure, is where it was very clear, where I was just basically sidelined. And as is very well um, uh, detailed in the 2200-page examiner report, among other um, ways that it was um, uh, laid out, uh, risk management then was repeatedly overruled. And so... It, it was a shame because you know back in '08, as I '98, as I said, was really when they they were in trouble, and there was no need for them to have uh, gotten themselves back into that spot by '08.
0: Right. And, so so by the time uh, things you know really started to fall apart, that sort of spring summer of 2008. I mean by that point, uh, just from what you observed within. Lehman Brothers, did it seem at that point that, you know, it was sort of, uh, you know, the horse had left the barn, it was kind of too late for, for things to be turned around at that point?
2: Well, that was, um, well, keep in mind, by spring, summer of '08, I was long out of risk management. Yeah. So I was basically,
0: you know... Um, but as you were observing what was happening, I'm sure you yeah, were the whole watching. whole market.
2: I mean, keep yeah. in mind, March of '08 is when Bear Stearns was taken over. And um, quite frankly, the year before that, if you remember, HSBC had uh, their – That was sort of when the cracks really started. HSBC announced their very large uh, write downs on House of Finance, and so the 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 market was in you know pretty shaky condition for you know certainly a year. Um, And so I would say that one of the things that doesn't really get focused on with Lehman is that. Um, Everybody focuses really on on mortgages or on on the commercial real estate, but they also had enormous um, credit exposure to, uh, for example, high yield. Um, And the whole leveraged lending business was really getting out of control in terms of leverage, in terms of of, – you know, the covenant lights and uh, these loans that were being made, which, by the way, is now kind of rearing its head again. That's right.
0: We've seen that again more yeah. recently, too. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. And so, um, so what was happening is that at one point back in '07, Lehman had uh, $50 billion of bridge equity. I mean, that is extremely liquid stuff. And so, uh, so it is true that mortgages were a big problem. But it's also true there were other very very illiquid assets that they had, and this is, I'm sure you've read about where I've wanted, I had wanted to do hedging, and they didn't want to because obviously there's a cost to hedge, but of course there's an advantage to do it when yep. the market goes down, and so um, that was in the summer of '07, or you know, the spring of '07, May but, I remember, and so um, they had, so so to answer your question. They, they, that you know, that had been laid out for a very long time, and you don't just turn a ship around uh, that quickly. When you had at that point, they had a seven hundred and fifty billion dollar balance sheet, and so um, outsized risk, but also very uh, rather illiquid um, positions that, in a um, in a sell off, or in a situation where you need to raise liquidity. Those are very hard assets to sell because they become very illiquid.
1: But didn't they also have the opportunity, I, I guess it was uh, maybe a month or two before they collapsed, they had an opportunity mm-hmm. potentially with mm-hmm. with Korean Development Bank as well uh, that they were going to buy, a uh, what, about a 50% stake, correct?
2: Yes, that was sort of uh, unfortunate um, because Cor- uh, Korean Development Bank, you're correct, they stepped forward. Um, in August of 08, and there were negotiations. And I remember we had thought um, you know, that was a hopeful thing. And uh, so they had uh, proposed 50% um, stake. And um, uh, unfortunately, you know, part of the hubris uh, in, among the management was you know, they knew better than anybody else. And so you know, it's like when you're selling your house. You may think it's worth X, but if all the buyers think it's worth X minus something, well, then if you if you want to sell it, you need to go to the where the market is. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, um, uh, the you know the senior management just would not um, compromise. And what really ended up happening was that uh, the the market kept deteriorating, and uh, senior management actually chased the market down. Because I remember the prices. And they kept, you know, they management thought it was higher than where the Korea Development Bank um, was offering. And then when, you know, Korean Development Bank, by the time, you know, management came down a little bit lower, Korean Development Bank said, sorry, you know, we're down even lower. And they just Mm -hmm. kept chasing it all the way down, all the way to the end. And within um, two days or three days or whatever it was of the – of the last day that Lehman uh, uh, was alive, on the, that Friday, the 12th, um, uh, Korean Development Bank had even come back for now, had reduced their offer for a 25% stake, mm-hmm. and uh, still they wouldn't um, budge on price.
0: So, Madeline, I'm, I'm glad you used that word "hubris," uh, which is a word that I've uh, remember uh, reading a lot at the time in 2008, and I think we're being reminded of some of that these days too. And my question for you is, I mean, you spent a long time on Wall Street. uh, You know, you've been watching this. Do you think that culture, you know, that sense of the CEOs or the top management kind of knowing better than anyone else, knowing better than, you know, what their own experts are telling them, do you think that culture um, has changed at all? I think that, that, well,
2: I would not call it a culture. I think that certain people have that characteristic and others don't. And certain people have that characteristic in in every aspect of of his or her life, and others don't. So I think, uh, you know, you could take a look at the firms that did well, that survived. Um, They have a different kind of um, uh, mentality at the senior level. One of the things that sort of has always bothered me, is that there is no um, separation of the CEO role and the, and the uh, chairman role. And, of course, if you look at a, cha- the, um, a board, the one of the primary responsibilities of the chairman is to pick a CEO and, um, and succession planning. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and to I serve as a so- check, presumably, on the CEO oh. from time to time. Sorry? I said... The role of the chairman also can be to serve as a check, sort of checks or balances. Absolutely, check yeah. and
2: balance and challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, so, um, uh, and so uh, in, at Lehman, uh, our chairman was also the chairman, the CEO, and in 2004, the president. So he's all three things. And, and a different kind of personality. I mean, he likes to uh, talk about how he's kind of rough, and, you know, he used to have this gorilla, literally a big gorilla um, uh, stuffed animal in his office to tell people, you know, I'm the gorilla. <laughs> and But now you go back to other institutions where they have a chairman who's also the CEO, and you didn't have that kind of problem. So to get back to your point about hubris being a culture, I don't think it's so much a culture I think it's you know unique to p- individuals because there are chairmen who are also CEOs who are willing to listen to ask questions to take on board other people's views and so it's not so much about having you know two different people having those two different roles or I think that's a healthy thing but that it does work when you have people get around the table and say, okay, here's my view. And people don't have to be fearful of sharing their view. There is, you know, a bully mentality when people don't want to stand up and, and speak what's really on their mind. And that's always a dangerous thing whenever you get any kind of leader that um, uh, sort of bullies people in submission and they don't yeah. want to, um, you know, they don't feel free to speak.
1: This is Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios in Philadelphia with Jyoti Thadum of the New York Times and on the phone with Madeline Ntonsik, who is an economist and former vice president and treasurer at the World Bank and also former chief risk officer at Lehman Brothers. Uh, she wrote this uh, opinion piece that ran recently in the New York Times called Lehman Failed for Good Reasons. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Madeline, I've asked this question of a variety of people uh, over the last few years, and I will ask it of you since you, you, you knew this culture that was going on or knew of it. Should there have been or could there have been criminal prosecutions of a lot of people that were involved in a lot of these activities?
2: Well, I I can't speak for, as you put it, a lot of people that were involved in these activities. But what I can say is, um, with respect to Lehman, no. And, in fact, the examiner asked me, uh, um, you know, why didn't I, quote, blow the whistle, as an example. And I said, well, as I know and understand, blowing the whistle means that there's something illegal going on. And in in, in my view, this is not illegal. It was poor judgment, not very smart. But so there's no law against not being smart, right? And, so, right? and so it's the same thing. There's no reason to quote. There is no whistle to blow. And so I don't think it was criminal. It was just exceedingly poor judgment um, and, uh, you know, poor decisions being made, um, uh, certainly poor governance, certainly poor, um, you know, uh, leadership and management. But I, I, don't, I, that doesn't really stand up to uh, criminality.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Madeline, when we were talking about this piece uh, and sort of the reasons for writing it, I, I was really struck uh, at how much interest there still is in this question of why layman and not AIG, you know, why mm-hmm. layman was allowed to mm-hmm. fail. And I think it really revealed, as you point out um, in your op-ed, that there's still so much anger about the bailouts like who was bailed out who was not that there's this sort of impulse to to look for some nefarious explanation that oh it was politics of why this firm was failed uh, was allowed to fail and this one wasn't i mean what do you make of that like that that anger over over what did and didn't happen
2: well that that's a great question and um, you know i i remember seeing watching the watching the congressional hearings and uh, the Ch- Lehman Brothers chairman was asked, you know, why do you think this happened? And he s- stared there into the cameras and said, to the day I die, I'll never understand why we were let go and AIG was saved. Well, it's pretty clear in my mind why AIG had to be saved and why Lehman should have been let go because they, they could have helped themselves, but they failed to. And and um, so, you know, after all, I spent a year at the estate helping them to unwind, and then I left and I went to the World Bank. And, you know, I've moved on. People have asked me to speak and write, and I, and I never have. But the reason I decided to write this piece is because um, there was yet another piece uh, in The Wall Street Journal that uh, talked about – it was politics, and it was, um, you know, a vindictive uh, behavior on the part of Secretary Paulson against uh Chairman of Lehman Brothers because they were competitors when Paulson was at, at Goldman, number one, and, uh, gold, and AIG was saved. It's, the people have always said this: AIG was saved because you know Lehman, uh, Goldman was owed 12.9 billion in collateral calls. I mean that's just so ludicrous; it's fantasy. If you think about, you know, we talked about Lehman. It, you know, they basically put the nail in the, in the coffin themselves. Think about AIG. AIG was four times more than four times the size at, at its peak, of uh, on a market cap basis as uh, as was Lehman. But it's not just the size that matters. It's the interconnectedness. They wrote insurance contracts uh, for, in over 80 countries around the world. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, they had a um, they were writing protection. Meaning, uh, you can think of it as an insurance contract. It's not. It's a derivative. But if a, if a institution is long, let's say some kind of corporate bond. AIG was was helping that institution hedge that exposure. Now the significance of that is they were they were writing protection on the CDSs and CDOs over over a half a trillion dollars worth. over 300 billion of that was um, protecting banks in the. US and in Europe, so the banks were buying protection, i.e. hedging through AIG um, by buying these credit default swaps and, and CDOs and CDS, um, and once AIG was downgraded, uh, what happened was the, the when you have a derivative, there's a trigger that says, okay, you don't have to post collateral or you have to post more collateral if you get downgraded. So, AIG was downgraded in May and June, and then they were downgraded again that week of uh, September, whatever it was, 15. And so, these banks in, the, in Europe and in and, and, and the U.S. were re- increasing the quality of their assets, meaning reducing the regulatory capital. So, mm-hmm. now imagine if AIG went away. All of these banks, then, would have enormous regulatory capital problems. So, and so this, this was, would have really been an extremely systemic um, uh, macro event,
0: right? A global and I and I was so glad that you raised this point in your op-ed. This question of um, this kind of uh, avoiding not just the collapse of one firm, but you know, avoiding a sort of global uh, crisis, sort of right. global. Yeah, exactly, dominoes. So. And I, and this is w- the one thing that sort of really worried me after reading your piece was that you point out that regulators um, and obviously it's it's not just the American regulators that have to deal with this haven't totally sorted out what would you do if yep. you had a firm you know on the level of AIG some other financial firm that was at risk of collapse that had that same kind of global uh, profile. Um, does that still is that something that still worries you
2: well there are um, there's different degrees right and so it's fair to say that with all the regulation um, banks are in much better shape they have a lot more capital they have um, more liquidity um, they have because they have these liquidity coverage ratio rules they have um, so so they're less leveraged because they also have these rules that are based not just on models but uh, on the, on the firm's models but also just on plain old-fashioned balance sheet size relative to equity so that's all good um, uh, I would say that the so-called living rules that were put in place which says okay regulator here's how we would unwind um, it, it has it is, is in my opinion that's a mixed um, uh, good versus you know it's not really all that effective the reason it's not all that effective in my mind is because in order to really be able to unwind a, in, an institution that's global and has lots of um you know subsidiaries around the world you need to have harmonized um uh bankruptcy legislation and that does not exist in even in in the european union which is kind of trying to harmonize many many things they haven't even achieved this, achieved this in, in 50 years. So I think it's a little bit, um, you know, it's a little bit false sense of security that now I have a plan, but can I really execute that plan? And the answer is, well, probably not. Let me just take an example of, of Lehman. Uh, Lehman had many legal entities, the largest of which was um, uh, LBIE, Lehman Brothers International Europe, which had large part of the assets were there. And... Um, And Holdings is what filed for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So LBIE um, actually um, petitioned the court, the high court, on that Sunday before Lehman Brothers, Inc. even filed for bankruptcy. And they petitioned the court to have um, uh, an administrator come in, and that's how PwC was assigned by the court. To um, unwind the institution, and um, and Lehman filed bankruptcy, the parent, that night at 1:45 in the morning. And the difference between let me give you just one little example: the difference between um, the U.S. bankruptcy law and uh, international law, where things go into administration, is in the U.S. Uh, Lehman Holdings became what they call a debtor in possession, mm. which means that the same management that drove the place into the ground was either able to continue to run it or pick a uh, an advisor to run it. So, so they picked, you know, friends and family to unwind. In Europe, the court decides who is an experienced, hmm. um, you know, uh, administrator to unwind this. Hmm. And so... So there's that, more oversight. Yes, different mm-hmm. kind of oversight. And, of yeah. course, the other problem was that... Um, uh, of course, each now has to uh, be concerned about its own legal entity's uh, best interest. But there could have been some kind of coordination and there wasn't. It was just hostility which doesn't really help um, and when now all of a sudden you've broken up an institution that was at least hedged, but now it's not because one of the things that regulators um, had allowed, and it still exists today by the way, is what they call split hedges which means that you could be long a position in one legal entity and have the hedge in a different legal entity. Now, if you both go your own separate ways, that's not an effective way of unwinding. Now, the good news is, while that has not been um, uh, changed from a regulatory perspective, the good news is today banks still do that. But what they do is now have uh, inter-affiliate trades to sort of offset that, so that the institution itself has gotten wise to say okay economic risk needs to be contained within our own legal entity that's good the Mm -hmm. bad news of course of that is then it creates more operational risk because you've got swaps going back and forth all over the place and so it kind of blows up the uh the amount of of swaps and then it also of course raises the question about the credit quality of one legal entity versus another and the collateral calls and all that other stuff so so it's good that the banks themselves realize um, while we'd still do these split hedges, we will try to contain the risk within legal entities. But again, the bad news is that that creates a, an increase in the number of swaps, operational mm-hmm. risk and other things. Right. But there's a, there's still the regulation that, that hasn't changed. Sure.
0: So, you know, one thing that uh, 10 years after... Uh 2008 that we've all been looking at. I mean, certainly in the business press, um, and we've done op- other op-eds about this. And I'm I'm curious to hear your point of view. Uh, just looking for looking around the corner for the next financial crisis. Like, are there uh, aspects of what's going on right of what's going on right now on Wall Street that worry you? I think. Um, well, I would be concerned about a couple of things. Firstly. Um,
2: while it's true that uh, we've had these regulations, and therefore we have higher capital in banks, um, that has caused an unintended consequence, which has led to the growth of this uh, so-called shadow banking. Mm. And shadow banking yeah. means you know banks aren't making certain kinds of loans, and now it's being made by um, what, what what I call peer-to-peer. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these leveraged loans are being made by you know. Um, um, Uh, private equity firms as opposed Mm -hmm. to banks, which means now there's less transparency to the regulator. And now these loans are being made by unregulated entities. Mm -hmm. And the credit quality. Now, uh... the other. So what I was (laughs) going to say is now, you know, I think the good news is households are in good shape. Mm -hmm. You know, the net worth is over 100 uh, trillion dollars. Their value of their homes is uh, is twenty five trillion versus you know ten trillion in mortgages. and so so that's all good. Um, I am a bit concerned about the uh, corporate debt. And uh, so for example, u s. corporate debt has doubled from a little over three trillion pre-crisis to a little bit over six trillion today. Good news is that the bulk of that is investment grade, but on investment grade, fifty percent of investment grade is now triple B. That's that's number oh, uh, one. Yeah, there are there are only three um, companies now that are still rated by Moody's as AAA: Microsoft, Johnson and Johnson, and Exxon. Yeah. And the re- and the reason for this is, of course, they've all taken on more leverage, high-grade leverage. Now, is three times EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, uh, depreciation, and uh, they that level, three times EBITDA, is uh, more than uh, Uh, about equal to the 2001-2002 level. So we haven't seen that in, you know, 17 years. And that was, of course, when we had the telecom and the utility uh, credit problems. So that's one thing that concerns me. The Mm -hmm. other thing that concerns me is um, if you look at the high-yield market, the junk bond issuance is actually down uh, on the year, but the leveraged loan business is really up and, and rising. And that's the stuff are largely being done you know uh, in shadow banks right and uh, what what troubles me about that is a couple things first of all we're back to the covenant lights more than 80% of these leveraged loans are covered light which covenant light which means covenants are the things that protect borrowers and so um, I'm sorry uh, the lenders and borrowers need to preserve their the lenders interest so they have to maintain interest coverage leverage ratios preserve the position of the lender in the capital structure but now the covenant light is saying okay these these rules don't you know you don't need to um, comply by them and of course they that, those would be early warning indicators if a con- company got into trouble and, and those right. things are gone the other thing that worries me is that um, these loans are floating rate, which is why the demand is so strong, because it mm-hmm. protects an investor as rates rise. However, it creates a problem for the corporate uh, corporation mm-hmm. to continue to service its debt. So I worry about, you know, we all know rates are rising, and so I worry about, A, the credit quality of the debt. Yeah. And it's gone down much more since, you know, uh, the crisis. And I worry about the ability of either companies to roll over that debt, reissue, or to make their interest payments as so much is now floating rate. The other thing I worry about in that respect, by the way, is uh, emerging economies, because to the extent that they have debt um, and as the, as the Fed raises rate, you know, the uh, market sentiment typically takes money out of emerging economies. Right. And, um, and also to the extent that the dollar rises when the rates are rise, uh, that also, of course, hurts the debt servicing ability of emerging economies.
0: And we've but, already started to see that happen. So definitely, yeah. I think these are yeah. warning signs.
1: Matt, yeah. Madeline, thank you very much for your time today. Great piece, and I greatly appreciate you uh, joining us today.
0: Thank you so much. You take care. (laughs)
1: Thank you. Madeline Antonsick joining us on the phone. Great uh, seeing you in person, Jyoti. Look forward to seeing you again here in Philadelphia uh, down the road.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. you.
1: Madeline Antonsick, former chief risk officer at Lehman Brothers, now an economist. Jyoti Thotum, uh, business and economics opinion editor at The New York Times.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.